0: Stack Overflow is used by developers to find out how to build software. Stack Overflow is both a tool and a community, and today's guest, Jeff Atwood, has made a career out of building tools and communities. As the co-founder of Stack Exchange and Discourse.org, Jeff has been solving the problem of civilized online communication for seven years. Jeff is also a prominent blogger, and you can read many of his interesting blogs on codinghorror.com. In today's episode of Software Engineering Daily, Jeff Atwood talks about building online communities from the perspective of an engineer as well as a sociologist. (music) Jeff Atwood is the co-founder of Stack Exchange and Discourse.org. Jeff, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. In 2007, you described Atwood's law, which is that any application can be written in any application that can be written in JavaScript will eventually be written in JavaScript. And it seems that everything is indeed being written in JavaScript today. So how were you so sure this would be the case nine years ago? Well,
1: I I think there were a couple trends. One was um, the way I learned to program was, you know, in the mid 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, When you got a computer, you would boot it up, and it would essentially boot up to a flashing cursor. It would boot up to a command prompt. (laughs) And then you had to kind of figure out what to do at that point. Like, what commands do I type to load things from disk? What commands do I type to get programs to run? (laughs) So there was this sense that you started out kind of learning the command line a little bit, which is very programmery, of course. And that's the feeling you have of, Sort of starting out as a programmer in that era was you had this commonly available environment that was a programming environment, and I think the modern equivalent to that is absolutely the browser because you know it's really easy to get into the browser, start typing some JavaScript. You don't have to, but it's like the command prompt that's always there. I mean, it's like the address bar. You can type JavaScript colon, you know, and start executing commands in the in the address bar of your browser. <laughs> so I think I guess the bigger theme is that the address bar in the browser is like the new command line in a lot of ways, for mm. people to use it. I mean, and there's people that can ignore it. They can just click on links or whatever. But it's a very, very short step compared to like, oh, I got to install something. I got to configure something. You know, how do I get to a programming environment? It's the programming environment that's in front of everyone. And I thought, you know, this works. This is the simplest thing that can work for most people. And that led me directly to JavaScript as we're sort of taking over the world.
0: What are the modern corollaries to Atwood's Law? Uh,
1: corollaries? Uh, I... I think one is that JavaScript is getting faster and faster. There were some concerns. I wrote other blog entries about how I was kind of worried because it felt like JavaScript hadn't really improved in speed much. And then that was like also in 2007. And then after that, there was still this huge push to make JavaScript faster. I think the other corollary to that is JavaScript is always getting faster because there's so many people using it, so many people iterating on it. Um, it all just sort of snowballs into, you know, and now Node disconnected it from the browser, so you have the same stuff running on the server in javascript same code at least same style of code on the server as in the client so i guess the corollary is that it's just gonna get faster and faster and get heavily optimized what are the other
0: big changes that you've seen around programming since 2007
1: um big changes i think the one that's been most noticeable to me actually is the changing demographics of who uses computers so (laughs) if you started out in the mid-80s you know, There's this perception that the computing, particularly programming, was this very male-dominated field. And I'd always noticed this. I didn't really think about, you know, why is it this way? I mean, I, I, it just is what it is. I wasn't, you know, I was a teenager. Um, and I think lately, particularly with a smartphone, it's like everybody has a computer. The geeks won because somehow we tricked everyone into carrying a computer around with them, right? Uh, and this means we won. The geeks won so resoundingly. They don't even understand where they are. Like, the geeks have become the man like the 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 rich people to keep everybody down like that's how definitively the geeks won and they still don't really understand this and they're still really struggling with that concept of i'm the man but i was the guy who didn't get it i didn't go to the prom i i barely interacted with other human beings i was afraid of people all these other people are more successful than me they're doctors they're lawyers and you know how can you tell me that i'm this powerful person that has all this influence can i'm actually you know scared of most people that i meet I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but this correctly described most programmers that I knew particularly early on was like you—you you sought out the computer because people are scary. People are machines that have rules that are basically impossible to understand, and then you go to this machine, the computer, where it's like, wow, it does exactly what it's told to do, even if it doesn't make any sense for it to do that, right? And uh, even if it fails, if you get one thing wrong, you know exactly what it's going to do. It's incredibly predictable, and it's a very satisfying world to be in. You know, it's safe. It's predictable. Everything mm. happens exactly as it's supposed to, even if it gets very complicated at times because there's so many parts. It's, 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 You can rationally think about what a computer is doing, uh, whereas you can't really do that about people. So <laughs> I think that's changed. The demographics have changed. There's so many more women in computing. Uh, you're just seeing computing really spread into every, you know, tiny corner of society. And that's a fairly rapid change because it really started, I would say, only with, like, Maybe the third or fourth generation iPhone started to be really big, you know? It wasn't like the minute they introduced the iPhone, the world changed. Like, no, this took time. So maybe, but like, 2011, 2012, we were starting to see that. There were mm. just so many people online and so many people in front of computers, you know, whether they're in their pocket or on the desk or on their lap. It doesn't really matter. It's still a computer. That was the great insight of the iPhone. It's like, hey, it's just another computer, and people accepted that, right? So I think, to me, that's the main thing that's changing is the field is becoming a lot more diverse, a lot more applicable a lot more interesting to a lot more people than it used to be. Say in the '80s when it was kind of a tool for the socially maladjusted in a lot of ways. Um, at least that's how I see it. I don't see. Yeah. You know, I don't see big tooling changes. It's pretty much Unix all the all down the line, <laughs> uh, and Unix hasn't really changed that much. You're still looking at people using editors that are basically, uh, I mean, Emacs and is it Vi or V? I never heard pronounce it. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, they're using these editors that were built like in literally 1975, you know, and uh, you know a lot of stuff programming hasn't changed a lot to be honest with you as far as the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be good or bad, but I see the demographic shifting tremendously. That's the main change that I see.
0: Yeah. So your newest project is Discourse, which is a free open source forum for civilized discussion, and I want to get to what it is written in and how it's written. But first, let's get into what it is not written in, which is JavaScript. So I'm sure you've been asked this question. Why didn't you write it
1: completely in JavaScript? Well, we kind of did. I mean, if you look at one of the main libraries, it's Ember. And Ember is a hardcore client-side, actually extremely complicated client-side programming library. A lot of people reject Ember because they think it's too complicated. Um, so I, I would say, first of all, that's not entirely true. Oh, okay. Um, a big mass of the app. when you When you visit a discourse site you're delivered a giant ball of javascript that javascript then paints everything on the screen every time you click a link the javascript retrieves json and then re-renders the screen there is no concept of a traditional page load in discourse it doesn't exist it's a ball of javascript that does stuff in the browser so oh, okay I, we did do that
0: okay so i guess i was i was sort of cribbing from your post from two thir- 2013 which is uh, why Ruby and and this was you were talking about your choice of of Ruby over .Net I guess for a a, a certain set of core functionalities in in discourse
1: so it would be the server side the stuff that's responding to, you know retrieving the data and sending the JSON back
0: oh okay so so what was your what was the roots of the decision to make that in Ruby over .Net
1: well we just needed something that we knew right off the bat this is going to be a fully open source project from the get go. And, you know, .NET, although I love it, is not great for open source because just and they've since then they've improved. There's actually more stuff that's been open source since I made that decision. But it's not really an optimal environment. It's not the native environment of .NET. It's not the native expectations, of the people going into it. It's not the way it was designed. Um, It's just not amenable to a pure open source approach, whereas something like Ruby started out that way, you know. And can, it's continuing to evolve in that direction. So I felt, you know, choosing .NET would be swimming upstream in a major, major way. Uh, and plus, that's just the server side. You know, on the client side, it's hardcore JavaScript. I mean, it's the hardest hardcore. If you ever talked to anyone that try to program Ember, you'll understand why it's very complicated um, to get things going. Can
0: you touch on that in more detail? Like, in, in what sense is it more complicated? Uh, it's building on these
1: abstractions, and some of the abstractions kind of get in the way. Uh, I apologize. I probably come off as of sounding negative about Ember, but I, I shouldn't because we use it and enjoy it. It's just it's a very heavyweight set of abstractions, and sometimes we found that you know we kind of longed for a slightly simpler level of abstraction. On the one hand, it makes doing complex things easy, but sometimes you don't need to do complex things and you just want speed, and you can't really do that in Ember. It's hard to just get like pure speed. And the reason this became a I a, hesitate to call a problem, but it's actually a smartphone issue. So. Smartphones long-term are, are going to become as fast as desktops. This is already happening on the iOS side. It's, it's incredible how fast the iPhone success is. I mean, I was blown away by these single-threaded benchmarks were like as good as like low-end Intel Core i3 chips. And I was like, holy cow, that's a major change. Um, so that's great. So we're getting lots of single-threaded speed because that's what you need for JavaScript. JavaScript is not really multi-threaded in any meaningful sense. So it's all about single-threaded performance. It doesn't matter how many cores you throw at it. It only goes as, as fast as the fastest core. And on the Android side, there's been some problems, like significant problems. Like Android really hasn't kept up on a couple fronts with, with Apple and iOS. The first of all, single-threaded performance is not good. Like Qualcomm, which is one of the major suppliers to the Android ecosystem, really had a bad, bad year. Like everything they introduced was just not good or had power problems or didn't perform well. Um Net effect being Apple really leapfrogged Android in terms of raw performance, if that's what you care about. And it matters to us because we're essentially sending down desktop class JavaScript. We're expecting the device to be really, really fast because I assumed when I started this project that, wow, if you graph the performance of smartphones, they're going to be as fast as desktops. You just look at the graph. There's nothing stopping them. They don't have all this, you know, the desktop hasn't gotten faster, really in five to 10 years, not meaningfully faster. Well, more like five years, but still. So I knew it was coming, so that's what we designed for. And that's worked, except for Android. So we actually needed to heavily re-optimize because of Android. And it gives everyone a better experience, too. You know, it's, I mean, performance is great. You know, But on iOS, you have so much performance that like it's literally ridiculously fast now. It's like comically fast. Uh, but on Android, not so much. Like, it's Android we're seeing like three to five times slower than we want to be because of just really peculiarities of the platform, both in terms of processors not really keeping up in meaningful ways and also on the JavaScript side, there's something weird going on with Androids V8 on uh, on Android only, not on desktop.
0: We've what a do you mean? Of,
1: well, it's it doesn't the type of code that Ember is, which is like heavily polymorphic and really complex abstractions, it really chokes on badly to the point that it's like five times slower than an equivalent iOS device, and that's on the latest Chrome and everything. They did some improvements, like we kept opening tickets with them and and saying, you guys got to really look at this because we don't understand. And it also affects Angular. It's not just an Ember problem. It's also Angular. Really, any super complicated, you know, API you're going to build in JavaScript um, runs into this problem on Android. So mm. they're looking at it, and they've addressed some of it. There's been some minor improvements. There was like, a 25% speed boost in I think, Chrome 46, 45. They're on, like, 48 now. So, yeah, anyway, that's the background. But I was when I launched Discord, I was really thinking... What is the world going to look like in 10 years? And how do I build something that will look like a smart choice 10 years from now? And for the most part, I think that's played out well for us, um, with the exception of the Android stuff I talked about.
0: So given all the uh, effort around React these days, do you think you would have chosen React if you started Discourse today?
1: It's possible. Um, It definitely didn't exist when we we started this in sort of late 2012, mid-2012. So, it's been a while. I don't think React was around that. I don't know what it looked like. Uh, And we knew we wanted to build a very heavy duty client side JavaScript app. And at the time, there weren't that many choices. And I like Ember. I think the people who designed it are really smart people. Um, uh, Let's see, YCATS, Yehuda, and uh, Tom Dale were sort of the initial people. And I respect them a lot. I think they made some really, really great decisions. But I also think they wanted to abstract a bit more than I would have. Um, There's times when we need to reach down. I don't want to say to the metal, because you're still in JavaScript. To the metal is a ridiculous conceit. When you're talking about JavaScript, you're like 15 layers up in the hierarchy, right? But we're seeing, for example, we rewrote some of our rendering paths, because we had to, um, kind of outside of Ember, using virtual DOM. And we see 5x speed up, um, sometimes 6 or 8x, depending on the device. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, you've been around for long enough to know when something is a new shiny thing, and... Uh, perhaps it is not worth changing, or it's not worth uh, chasing. When you look at the the proliferation of of all these JavaScript frameworks, and you know it's it's easy to, to chase from one to the other, and to uh, think, oh, this new thing came out. It this is the this is the JavaScript framework framework to rule them all. How how do you uh, when you look at these different JavaScript frameworks, what? What do you see in terms of substance and uh, what do you see in terms of vaporware?
1: Um, I think it's mostly about usage. I don't really think about what are the technical merits of X or Y. I really look at what people have built using X or Y. And I use that as a benchmark to decide whether it's working or not working. You know, for example, like how many websites do you see today built in say, I don't know, cold fusion. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the evidence. That's all the evidence you need. It's really evidence of usage. You know, is what what matters. So, on the bleeding edge, you know, nobody's using it. So an experiment, and I'm not. I'm. This is one of the reasons we didn't do Node as the client side language in Discourse was because I looked at the Node.js ecosystem, which was around at the time, and I thought, you know what, this is so immature that if we start a Node, we're gonna have to rewrite the app like three times from scratch because everything is gonna change. The frameworks aren't there. The you know structure around it isn't there. It was just gonna be this. That was my gut feeling. That's what I think about Bleeding Edge stuff. You can do it, but you're going to rewrite your app two, three times. If that's not something you're comfortable with, then don't choose super Bleeding Edge stuff. Mm.
0: Yeah, so the the evolution of the Node ecosystem has been really rapid. How has it compared to the evolution of, of other, uh, you know, widely adopted um software ecosystems that you've seen over the years i mean i was going to say java but java's maybe not the best analogy since it was kind of had some significant stewardship within a company yeah i mean what what comparisons come to mind
1: um with node
0: specifically Well, in terms of how Node has evolved as a community and, you know, you you basically mentioned that you you chose not to write your application in Node because of how fast it was evolving. And so I guess I'm wondering if this is an aberration, how quickly it was evolving at the time, or if this harkens back to anything you've seen before. Well,
1: I think it's kind of another case of what I was describing a minute ago, which is stuff that's good gets used, you know, and even stuff that's not good gets used, like, for example, PHP which is emphatically not good, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It gets used a lot. And, and that's okay, actually. If, if people are building cool stuff with it, it bodes well for the platform, right? Like if people are using it, that bodes well for the platform. Quality doesn't have a lot to do with it, but usage really, really does. So I would say in the case of Node, it's, it's a good sign. You're just seeing a lot of people using it. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of things being built. Um, that's really positive. Mm-hmm. You know. And I think maybe the thing to look at there is to compare with stuff like Rust and Go, you know, how much momentum they have is really a function of how many people are building stuff with them. And that that's a combination of a bunch of factors, which is, like, how easy is it to get started? How many people, you know, can get the platform without too much friction? Um, you know, is it easy to deploy, easy to reason about? Like, one of the big stories about PHP that has been hard to combat is how easy it is to deploy a PHP solution. Because everybody, I call it, you know... Everybody has PHP in MySQL, which I call server herpes. You know, everybody has server herpes. So everything that's in MySQL or PHP will just kind of work if you deploy it. And our story there is really about Docker containers. So we're saying, look, Ruby environment still quite complicated. One of the downsides of Ruby is it came from, you know, the, the base camp guys, right? 37signals. And if you think about their business model and what they do, they do not give any shits about deploying code anywhere because they don't deploy code. All they do is deploy a product, and people buy the product, right? So one of the huge weaknesses in the Ruby ecosystem is they didn't think about deployment. So deployment, one of the things we struggle with as we were packaging Discourse like, holy cow, this is really, really hard to get deployed. There's so many dependencies, so many moving parts, so many things. To like get it on a Linux server is like seriously complicated to the point that it was harming the project. right? Like People can't figure out how to get Discourse installed, or if they can, they're like super geniuses, right? Or they already are Ruby programmers or whatever. So we want to extend beyond Ruby programmers. We want to be available to everyone. So early on, we latched onto Docker. It was like, oh, wow, we can take a container, which, you know, it's like a VM without the VM cost. You can package up all your stuff, ship it, and then they just dump this container on their Linux server, and it magically works. And that's been our deployment. Pr- you know, that's been our solution to the deployment problem. And I think that was a smart bet if you look, at the, again, the momentum behind Docker of how many people are using it, why are they using it, what kind of results are they getting. Um, we had amazing results with Docker. We went from being a support nightmare where, like, you know, there was 10,000 things that could be wrong on your version of Linux that would prevent us from working. Like, did you have OptiPing installed? Nope. Well, then stuff's going to be broken, right? Uh, Trivial stuff, there's tiny stuff that could get wrong, and there was hundreds of these things, would cause it not to work and cause them to post for support. Um, And that overwhelmed us as well. This is like a self-preservation mechanism. At some point, it's like, we have to have a system that's simple because our team can't support Hundreds of people having running into problems trying to set up discourse. So Docker, you know, let, is a solution to that particular problem. That's why we used it, and it's worked really, really well. Now it's just, did you? First, the first question we ask is, are you on the Docker container? And they say no. We're like, can't support you. <laughs> uh, and if they are, then we're like, okay, now we'll fix it. And if there's anything wrong, we can improve uh, the container provisioning, improve stuff in the container. You just pull down a new container, and then bam, you're up to date, right? So I think it's stuff like that to me.
0: We've done a number of shows about Docker and and like you said, the, the adoption and the pace of that community is, has been really impressive too. What do you think are the future implications of Docker and, and
1: where the product is going? I think, I think overall it's a really powerful thing, which is I always said for a long time, it's like, oh, virtual machines are so amazing because it gives you this ultimate kind of safety. You can compartmentalize a bunch of stuff on the server by running them in VMs. You know, it's awesome. It's like, this is the future. Everything's going to be running in a VM. And that kind of happened, but I think really, I think containers are going to be the more dominant technology because they're so much more efficient uh, in terms of overhead, right, in terms of performance. Because one of the first things we did, also related, is we had this idea that when we set up Discourse in, in early 2013, we're like, okay, we'll host everything on one super beefy server, we'll just run a bunch of virtual machines, and then you know, those will be the things that are driving the infrastructure of discourse.org. And we found that Ruby virtualized just awfully. Like, it was like 40% performance loss. Like, really, really high numbers. Much higher than I expected. With a VM, you expect, like, disk performance always takes a hit because it's virtualized disk. Uh, and faster your disks are, actually, the worse this is. So the general rule of thumb was always, like, VMs are pretty good as long as you're not disk-heavy on performance. And I do believe that's still basically true. Well, with Docker... <laughs> You can say you remove those limitations. You have much less memory overhead, essentially. You know, no CPU overhead uh, and no disk overhead, really. So you went from being on a VM like you know small hit, small hit, large hit, you know, to like no hits. It's like it becomes free at that point almost. Mm. And I think that's really compelling in terms of packaging stuff up to put on a server, and it gives you great isolation. Let me give you another example. We had a problem in one of our Postgres installations, which was not Dockerized. It was literally some file system setting about time zones that was causing Postgres to freak out and do something really weird. And it took us like hours to figure this out, right? Like, why is this happening? What's different about this? And it was, a, it was because the base operating system was affecting Postgres in a way, a way that was specific to that machine. So if we had put a Docker container out, it wouldn't have cared. It's like, oh, I have my own operating system. You know, I don't care about your operating system. I don't care what your time zone, quirky little time zone, you know, classic Unix weirdness. Some conf file somewhere had some weird setting, right? So we wouldn't have had that problem, you know? The Docker container would just run happily and ignore that. Mm. So speaking
0: about software ecosystems, and you, you touched on this a little bit uh, in terms of .NET, how .NET is, is evolving, they're starting to open source some of it. Um, what do you think will be the impacts of the .NET shift to open source? And do you, do you feel like this is iconic of... Uh, of a true shift in direction for Microsoft in terms of the product and
1: how the company engages with developers? Honestly, I don't think it's going to matter that much because when you start has a huge impact on where you go. And they're starting so late. They're so late to this party. Because if you look at Miguel de Acasa's work on Mono, which was his company that essentially tried to open source .NET without approval from Microsoft. They were like, we really like .NET, it's an amazing language. We just want it to run on Linux. you know, And they just basically started doing that. They basically built up a .NET equivalent. <laughs> and I remember talking to uh, engineers at Fog Creek that had looked at this because they had a lot of Microsoft code, and they were thinking about using .NET uh, for the on-premise stuff when they delivered code to customers that was actually in Mono. And they ran into This was five or six years ago. It was a long time ago. But they ran into a lot of subtle problems because it's not exactly the same. So I think there is some value in Microsoft saying yes, it is now exactly the same. I can guarantee you the same exact behavior on Unix as Windows. That is hugely significant because that will prevent that will enable people to move much easier without dealing with you know the fact that it's some third party implementation of .NET that's not you know it, it's very very good, but who can guarantee that it's actually compliant? It's a very very hard thing to do. So I do think that'll help them in terms of getting flexibility on deployment with .NET. Um, Essentially, it, you know, it undermines their Windows server story, which I'm sure they're not happy about, right? Because most of their money comes from the server stuff. Uh, and to me, as a programmer, would be like, wow, now I have the flexibility to take .NET code and deploy it on cheap, reliable commodity hosting that doesn't cost me you know, $5,000 per server in software licensing. So they're still actually protected because SQL Server is, is also ridiculously expensive. Like if you look at, I'm not at Stack Overflow anymore, but... One of the things they were really afraid of is SQL Server licensing costs, which are extreme. I mean, they're not oracle size, but they're kind of like, if you have to ask, you can't really afford it kind of levels. And I think the last I heard, they were putting like half a million dollars in licensing fees per year on is, just SQL Server alone. Is that the Microsoft bread and butter these days? I would have to assume so, because the the server licenses aren't that expensive. They're not super cheap, but they're not onerous whereas if you look at sql server you're just like wow you start to go you start saying wow when you look at the numbers on how much sql server costs but in its defense sql server is quite good i mean it's an amazingly robust database it does a lot of things right it doesn't stress me out i supported you know sql server from 2008 until you know 2012 when i left stack exchange and we spent a lot of time working with the database and it was mm-hmm. mostly a pleasant experience you know it did what it was supposed to do it was fast you know there were some quirks but they were understandable and it was easy to reason about and think about for the most part one thing that drove me crazy that I just want to mention this is you know databases try to predict what's going to happen when they see a query and they're trying to parse the query like okay what strategy do I strategy do I choose in terms of indexes for this query so they they have statistics about the database about like you know how many rows you know what type of rows what's going to be fast what's going to be slow and usually they got it right but occasionally they get it deeply wrong where they look at the stats and they would pick this 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 query strategy that was just catastrophically bad it would take like five <laughs> minutes for the query yeah and you're like oh my god why is this happening because most of the time this query is fine but occasionally it just, query just freaks out so what we found was that you had to skip the optimization step where it was trying to guess what it would be good at because it was guessing wrong it was guessing wrong in that it's like a like a branch misprediction in a cpu right like you pay the cost of going all the way back because you made a bad prediction well in the database that gets really bad but one of the funny terms that I loved is, is is what's called optimize for unknown. So you would add, literally, optimize for unknown to the end of this query. And it would say, okay, I'm not going to try to guess with my stats. So it's going to be good. I'm just going to assume it's all, you know, I, I can't guess. I'm just going to use the indexes in the order that I normally would. So I love that. It's like, it's like a great life strategy. Always optimize for the unknown. You know? <laughs> Plan for what might happen. You know, just think ahead. Just like think ahead just enough that you're ready for whatever's coming. So, yeah. So, you know, I... Long story short, I don't know that open .dotNET is going to buy them a whole lot. It's going to hurt them a little bit on the server. The history isn't there for community, and the mentality is not there. You know, the people that use .dotNET don't have an open source mentality, and I think that matters a lot. So, I mean, maybe, but I don't see it changing anything in the near term, but in the next five years, really. Mm.
0: Three years ago, you started building Discourse, which is a tool for civilized forum discussion. How has the software development process of building discourse compared to when you were building Stack Overflow?
1: Well, I think I followed a very similar pattern, which is you know it's all remote development. Um, get a core team of very highly talented people on a very, you know, clear mission statement, and then just start building stuff. I don't know that my approach has really changed all that much. One thing that does affect us is in the Microsoft world, you kind of gravitate towards big iron for a couple different reasons. Uh, One is licensing. The other is that that's kind of what Windows is best at. Windows is not awesome if you want to have a fleet of 500 machines. That's kind of a big pain in the butt on Windows. Uh, You'd much rather have five really awesome machines. And that's kind of how we ran stack for a long time, was, like, just get fairly powerful machines. And it's .NET, so it's compiled code. And, you know, SQL Server is super efficient. So, like, you didn't need, like, Massive amounts of speed to get really good performance. As long as you were careful and didn't make too many, you know, programming boo boos that make your performance suck, <laughs> you had really nice performance out of the box. But you did also didn't didn't need a lot of servers for a variety of reasons. Um, whereas on, on the Linux side, you need a lot of servers because redundancy, you know, performance on Ruby is you know it's okay, it's not awesome. So like you really need. A lot of servers and pretty fast servers and i Mm -hmm. kind of didn't anticipate how much sysadmin overhead there would be on the linux side i guess that's the kind of it's kind of we're falling into the cliche the cliche is of linux is free if your time is worthless that's not it's kind of an overstatement (laughs) but there is some truth there because i found stuff that was really simple in windows i'm like first of all it's a problem because i don't really know linux i've been learning but like it's just surprising like how difficult some of that stuff can be and how quirky it can be in terms of all these different open source things working together and there's a lot of quirks and you know, open source is just broken a lot of the time. That's the reality. It's not good, it's not bad. It's just the way it is and it's free, right? You're supposed to help fix it and I'm totally down with that. We've submitted so many patches upstream to like, to like Ruby, to Rails, um, to Docker, um, a lot of tools that we touch, if we fix something, we contribute it back, which is what you're supposed to do. But you have to have this expectation of in the Microsoft world. If it wasn't broken, it's like, well, that evil Microsoft is keeping us down, and you would contact them and get all these support reps, and they would kind of get on it. There were a few bugs we did run into with .NET that were semi-serious, but they were on it. It was like they had a formal process. They would get patches together. And it kind of worked. And we were kind of a high-profile customer being Stack Overflow, so I'm sure we got preferential treatment in that regard. But in the open source world, it's not really like that. It's sort of on you to fix everything. <laughs> There's nobody there to help you fix all this stuff that's broken. So you need really talented sysadmins. Very, very talented. I think that's the main thing that I've run into in Discourses. I vastly underestimated the skill and depth we would need on the on the sysadmin side. On the Microsoft side, we could get a by just by being what they called you know, DevOps, like programmers who know enough sysadmin stuff to be dangerous, right? And that pretty much worked. I don't think that works at all on the Linux side. <laughs> if you have programmers that don't know, like, Linux, um, you're going to be in trouble on a Linux infrastructure because there's a lot of quirky little things that come up. And, you know, you should just plan accordingly for that. That, that to me, is the, the number one finding I had for the difference between two projects.
0: Speaking of infrastructure, in 2012, you wrote a post about running discourse on your own servers rather than using AWS.
1: Are you still running on your own servers? Yeah, we are. We're okay. putting So our new strategy is really two things. I have a great blog post about that. You can reference it in the show notes if you want about like, why would you build versus buy? And the first reason is because co-location is insanely cheap now. I mean, like ridiculously cheap. I was shocked how cheap co-location is. You get a ton of bandwidth, essentially unmetered, and like a full rack for basically six hundred dollars per month that's nothing and uh you know i i think the main reason to do it is, is really if you're a control freak it's good uh if you want a lot of performance like super high-end performance which we did it's good um it kind of bites you on flexibility though because you have to actually physically walk the servers out there deploy them and get them ready if you have some big burst of activity where you all of a sudden need 10 more servers you're just sol but what I'm liking more and more is, and we move on, is what I call, and this is, I apologize, this is horrible enterprise speak, is hybrid cloud. But I really think hybrid cloud is a strong concept because what it lets you do is put most of your stuff on your core servers that's fast, that's, you know, reliable, that you control, that you can optimize for, all that stuff. You get really kick-butt performance. But then when you get pushed over, you need flexibility, you put some stuff in the cloud, and then move it back and forth, depending on where it's going. Like one of the things we're thinking about a discourse is eventually I've got to work out the economics of this, but free trials that are provisioned in the cloud. So they're not risky to us. Like if Justin Bieber signs up for a free discourse and gets a billion users, like it's not going to take down our whole infrastructure. That was a real risk for us. Right. Uh, but if you do it in the cloud, it becomes someone else's problem, which is kind of nice when you're dealing with unknowns, which is you don't know. What kind of people are going to sign up for this hypothetically free? I'm not announcing that, by the way. I'm just saying we're thinking about it. And but hybrid cloud is a really strong candidate for that scenario, right? Because once they deploy in the cloud, they're happy they work. You move them over to your infrastructure, you get a big boost in performance, right? Because it's like the machine is going to be three times faster than what you could spin up at, you know, Amazon without paying like thousands of dollars for the privilege, right? Uh, So I like hybrid cloud. And then you know, for geographical diversity, if a customer comes to us and says, "Hey, I like discourse, but I don't, what happens if there's a giant earthquake in California? And my answer is, well, if that happens, then we're all pretty fucked because uh, we don't have any other data centers, right? So I could say, well, you know what we can do for you? We'll have one server in our main data center that'll be a primary server. We'll have a replica in the cloud. It'll be, you know, live streaming the data or whatever, we'll work on some method of keeping it up to date, which is, you know, we're getting pretty close to that right now in our infrastructure internally. And then if something happens in California, bam, everything switches over to you know AWS. You know, and then and then you're good. So we have a backup, a live, hot backup story that's geographically diverse, without crippling our performance, and also without, you know, paying through the nose for these really fast instances on Amazon. So, you know, I, I'm very bullish on colocation at this point, but I'm also very bullish on in the future doing more and more stuff with the cloud to sort of augment what we have now. With that in mind, do you have a good idea for how the different cloud
0: service providers like AWS and Azure and DigitalOcean, how do these compare on
1: features and cost? You know, there's a bunch of information out there on this. I don't know that I'm exactly the best person to speak with Oh, of. okay. I, I can tell you that one of the reasons we got into DigitalOcean, and again, you kind of watch what people do. There's two ways to observe people. One is to, well, three. One is to theorize about what people might do doesn't work very well (laughs) the other is to ask them what they want to do this also in my experience works okay but it's not really that great and the best one is to observe what they actually do (laughs) because that will tell you where the money is actually going and what what actually works and what doesn't work i mean this is really complimentary the other things i just said to you about like who's using what is the best measure of success right so we noticed a lot of people are saying hey i want to set up on DigitalOcean." And we were like, wow, I've never heard of DigitalOcean. And we looked at it, and the reason they like it is because it had awesome UI. It was very fast. It was very inexpensive for what you got compared to AWS and stuff. So I think these, these companies are all competing with each other, which is good because we want people to be able to deploy Discourse. And Discourse still has fairly high requirements. As, you know, we pushed it down to one gig of memory, um, single core, dual core is slightly better, but single core is no problem, uh, reasonably modern single core, not something from like 2008. Uh, and then like five gigs of disk space. So that's still basically $10 a month. The best you're going to do for VPS, something that's Docker compatible, a virtual private server where you can put a Docker container, it's about $10 a month. So would I like it to be $5 a month? Sure. Am I going to cripple my product to make it work in less memory than that? Because we got to load Postgres, Redis, Ruby, Unicorn, I'm probably forgetting some, Sidekick, which is like a scheduling thing. Five things have to load in that memory, right? And they have to work. <laughs> so this isn't really a low-end solution, but what I'm banking on is that over time, the cloud's going to get a lot cheaper, a lot faster, right, and give you more for the same amount of money. So, you know, there's definitely some competition, which is why we saw people pushing us towards DigitalOcean. So I kind of just watch it what my, what the community is doing, what they're telling us they want, and that's when the winners kind of emerge. If people are using it, they're winning. If people aren't using it, then they're not winning. Hmm.
0: What is the most difficult engineering challenge you have right now at Discourse? It's
1: definitely sysadmin, as I mentioned earlier. Okay. Because we have so many machines. And we're also a hosting company. To be fair, you know, Stack Overflow was not a hosting company. We had one product that had to run, right? And it wasn't really customer-facing in terms of you know, other people weren't setting up Stack Overflows themselves, right? Um, so I think it, 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 it's a more difficult scenario to start with. And also, we just need a lot more machines to do it. They're still cheap machines. I mean, these machines are amazing values for the money. Again, compared to the cloud, <laughs> uh, what you would get, these are off the charts in terms of performance and availability and stuff. But, yeah, that's that's been the main thing we've really struggled with is the system in burden and system and load and DevOps-type stuff, distracting people from programming. We expected a, a lot of it, but as you grow, this burden grows disproportionately, right? Unless you're very clever about how you build your infrastructure. How, how does provisioning work? How does hosting work? How do you manage load on each server? How do you move stuff around? Like we had some denial of service attacks, like distributed denial of DDoS uh, attacks. So we have to figure out how do we deal with that? <laughs> uh, very little of my problems have to do with actual code. Uh, even when I was building Stack Overflow, very few of our problems were code-related problems. There was a lot of business problems. There was a lot of infrastructure problems. There was a lot of community problems. Uh, code is pretty low on my list of problems. Um, and discourse is also open source. So like anybody who wants to can jump in there and start, you know, contributing stuff. And we take we take in tons of contributions from the community all the time. So we get help from them.
0: Let's talk some about product
1: development.
0: Uh, I heard your interview on the Product Hunt radio show. It was really interesting. You said that you think of building communities, or at least you said this in terms of Stack Overflow. As building a game. So I when you said this, I was really curious. What what are the gamification properties that are really important to bake into an online community like Stack Overflow or perhaps Discourse?
1: Well, you have to have a reason for people to come back. This is the number one rule of building anything. You know, well, I guess there's a couple of rules. First, I, I did... I did this, there was this contest, I forget the name of it, I think it was like, uh, I can't remember the context of the contest, but anyways, a bunch of people submitted uh, projects, it was like things they had built, things they had programmed, and the first thing I, I, I noticed when I was trying to judge this contest, like well, who wins, who loses, was I had to go to their website and see, can I even figure out what the hell this thing is <laughs> from the website, so seriously, before you even get to like, how good is it, it's like, what the hell is it? You know (laughs) can people even understand what it is you're trying to do and on top of that okay I understand it right okay good yeah well I understand that's cool do I care right is this something that's gonna affect me at all in my life or something that I'm gonna want you know because if you're building a product that's super niche there's nothing wrong with this if it's a you know rich niche where there's a lot of money you know that that's fine but you know what's the size of your audience how many people would you reasonably expect to be interested in this you know, is it, is it something like Uber? Is it something like you know, Facebook, which can touch like every human being on the planet theoretically, or is it something more narrow? So that was the other thing is like, do I care? And then also can they convince me that I care? There's a little bit of salesmanship there about like, okay, I understand what it is. not totally sure it applies to me, but then like, you know, sell me, you know, make this sound really awesome so that I like it, that I'm excited about it. So those, those are sort of the first things that you get to on a project. And you know you're immediately in trouble when you're explaining stuff to people and their eyes just kind of glaze over, like, oh, okay, (laughs) all right, that's great. You know, like, first of all, you have to be excited, right? You have to communicate that excitement to other people and make them, convince them that this is something that they want. And then moving beyond that, you know, can you actually get people to use it? I think that is the big, big hurdle. That's the thing we've been doing in discourse for a long time is what I like to call complaint-driven development, where can you get your product in front of people? Yes, good, awesome, that's that's step zero. Step one is what are they complaining about when they use your product, okay? And how adept are you at addressing those complaints? Because there's really two, two classes of complaints. There's complaints that are, you know, not really related to your product but related to something else. And then there's complaints that really are about you need to fundamentally improve your product so people don't need to complain about this because they understand it and it's clear and it's simple to them and it works. You know, so I, there's, a, there's this tight feedback loop on complaint-driven development. It's like take the top three things that people are complaining about and resolve them. Let me give you some simple, dumb examples that we ran into on discourse. And these are ridiculous. Like we should have thought of this stuff. In all these cases, we're idiots because we didn't think of it, about this before our customers were telling us. But our customers were telling us stuff that mattered that we should have thought of. For example, one that didn't come to us early on was you know, you have a discourse subscription, so you have a billing profile and you, your, your credit card expires or it's stolen or something happens to your credit card. You need to change your credit card, right? So every time this happened, they would have to actually email us because we were so dumb at product development. We didn't realize you need a big button that says change your credit card, you know, like a UI for changing your credit card. <laughs> so we were handling all that manually. And we realized after a while, it's like, wow, we get a lot of requests to change credit card. This is annoying. <laughs> we should have really built uh, that function into the site, right? So not just on the billing side, but also on the, on the product side. Like when people complain about a feature, like I don't really understand this. They're not really complaining. They're, they're asking, like, why does – I don't understand how this works. You find yourself explaining over and over certain things about the product. It's because you designed it wrong. It's not because your customers are idiots. It's because you're an idiot. <laughs> you designed it wrong, and it's confusing, and it needs to be uh, changed. So there's a lot of things like that that I really – I have a spider sense that starts tingling like crazy. I'm like, wow, a lot of people are complaining about X huge spider sense tingles right um that tells me that we got it wrong and we need to rebuild it and redesign it and change it Mm.
0: different social networks have different notions of identity how does identity play into the construction of a healthy community
1: um i think flexibility is where it's at i think everybody has a different idea of of you know, what that means and how it works. Plus each community could have different ideas about that. I mean, if you have a community of furries, then they're going to have very different ideas about identity than, than you do, right? And that's that's okay. It's their community. It's whatever they want it to be. Uh, so I think the main assumption that we built into Discourse was that email is your source of login identity because we spent a lot of time working with OpenID on Stack, Stack Overflow. We got so much flack for that. But my thinking was, I am so tired of remembering usernames and passwords, right? Like I don't care if you use software to do it or whatever, or the browser, it's a pain in the butt. And like OpenID was problem it was a way to solve that by saying, oh, I'll use my OpenID to log into 50 different websites. Now I don't need 50 different usernames and passwords. I just use my OpenID, which unlocks those 50 sites for me. And that's a great concept. It's a very powerful concept. And I think it's, it's kind of playing out that way in terms of Google, log, log in with Google, log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter, that becomes your skeleton key to a bunch of other sites. Like, oh, I log in with Twitter, and then I'm in, and I don't have to remember your username and password. I don't have to remember my Twitter username and password. Um, and and that, that's great. But OpenID made a very critical mistake, which is they assumed that having a URL be your identity, a website as your identity, could work. And we found repeatedly that it didn't work because it's really confusing. Like, not everybody thinks, oh, this is my web page, this is who I am. That's a really alien concept to people. I mean, even if they're on Facebook, it's like, oh, this is my Facebook page. That's my identity. It's like, they don't really think of it that way. Whereas if you say, hey, your email is your identity. It's like, well, of course, that's where I get all my email. When I forget my password, guess what happens? I send a, you know, forgot password request. And then the email arrives telling me what my password was. So email equals identity. That was such a pain in the butt with OpenID and essentially killed it, in my opinion, was this, this central flawed assumption that users are okay with, you know, URL as, as an identity. and it, They really weren't. It didn't work. Well, and Discourse went the opposite direction said look email is identity I don't care if you have five emails I understand that but like you have to pick one and that's your identity when you sign in with Discourse you're signing in with that email address and if you forget your password it gets sent to that same email so there's a very close association between those two topics plus we do the social login of course Google, Twitter, Facebook GitHub Um, I think there's even one for Steam and so on
0: so I heard an interview, uh, the, that interview with you on on the Product Hunt podcast, and you talked about a fear that Facebook would be too much of a walled garden eventually, and that the that there's a sense of lock in in the identity system that something like Facebook establishes. Given your uh, time on the internet, your experience with the way that communities develop. What are the potential risks associated with centralizing the identity
1: login system of the internet? Well, I think, I think it's partial centralization is what I'm a fan of, you know, the idea that you, know, you can log in with Google, I can log in with Twitter, I can log in with Facebook, like there's this Coke, Pepsi type dichotomy, right? It's not, there's one drink, the Uber drink that everybody drinks, Soylent, or whatever. Soylent, by the way, as a customer, I love Soylent. Um, <laughs> so I'm saying nice things about our customers. I, I um, used to use the Soylent discourse. Oh, yeah? Nice. I, I, I made my own soilant in, in college. It was crazy. Yeah, no, that's a great community. That's actually an example of a really strong type of community that, that I think that's why we wrote discourses for mm-hmm. communities like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you don't want, you want sort of not one bucket, but several buckets, I think is the compromise that I think works. You don't want 10,000 buckets because who can keep track of that in their brain in terms of identity? Like if you open your wallet right now, like literally right now, open your wallet and take out all your forms of identity. How many do you think you would have? Five? Six? And they're different types, right? One's like yeah. a library card. Probably like four. One's like your driver's license. So they have different levels of security associated with them. One's like you know your, your convenience card for the supermarket, right? Yeah, BCBS. Yeah, exactly. So you don't care so much if that gets compromised, right? So you have some choices. That's what I'm getting at. You as a user need choices like which form of identity do I use? How secure, like if I'm logging into my bank, it needs to be the best one I can think of, which for me is kind of Google. I I trust Google to the hilt. I mean, NSA stuff aside, I actually really trust Google in terms of doing everything correctly, not getting compromised, teaching me the right things to do, forcing the receiving entities to do the right thing. Um, I trust them super implicitly. So if it's anything important, I will use Google if I can. Um, But if it's something really trivial, then you know, I would use a less secure form of identity that is for my low value. sites. like, so this is compromised. It doesn't really matter. There's nothing important here. This is the site where I ordered, you know, five, you know, books from once.
0: It doesn't really matter. Why do you have more trust in Google than Facebook? Uh,
1: well, I've been to Facebook. First of all, uh, they did a little partnership thing with us on stack overflow that ended very, very badly and reinforced all my negative stereotypes of, uh, Facebook, so when we went in for that meeting, they were like, "Look, Facebook hasn't been a good developer story. We haven't been good with developers. Like that's all true. <laughs> developers basically hate you." Um, and he's like, "But we want to change that. So we're going to have this relationship with Stack Overflow, and you know, we're going to we're going to answer a bunch of Facebook questions on Stack Overflow, um, and." I was like, okay, well, if that's the case, if you're really going to be, we'll build Facebook.StackOverflow.com. And for a little while, there was Facebook.StackOverflow.com, where you could go and sort of have a little hub to look at all your Stack Overflow questions that were about Facebook. And the short, long story short, they didn't really, they didn't live up to their side of the bargain, like at all. Like nobody from their side was really answering all these Facebook questions, or even trying to answer the Facebook questions. Over time, there was really no participation on the Facebook side, and. Hmm. That's generally the the attitude that Facebook has. They're very capricious when it comes to developers. It's essentially Facebook. Facebook is a company that loves Facebook. Facebook does not give any shits about you as a person or the community. Facebook loves one thing and one thing only, and that is Facebook. And that is always the behavior that I've observed from them. That's everything that I've seen reinforces that. Uh, They're not evil per se. It's just in the list of things that matter, Facebook number one, everybody else, whatever. Right? And I feel like Google really is like, let's, the health of the web. Google, for example, let me give you an example. This is another perfect example. Google just started penalizing sites that do fake user interfaces. Like, oh, click this button to update your video codecs, And it's, of course, a lie. It's like something that installs malware on your PC, right? Well, Facebook, you can look this up. Google just announced, okay, sites that do this are going to get penalized. We're going to start dropping them from our index. And that's awesome, right? Where has Facebook really done that for the web? You know, I don't think Facebook really cares about the web. they care about Facebook. And, you know, most of their access is now on an app, further divorcing them from the internet proper. Right. So Google, there's a lot of examples like they, they basically drive out the bad guys because they have to for the health of the ecosystem. Whereas Facebook is kind of fine saying, look, it's our town. We control everything. And, you know, the rules are what we say they are. You know. So I,
0: I imagine you're
1: pretty suspicious of the free basics stuff. What is free basics? I don't know. it. Oh, this is the
0: the the internet.org.
1: Internet.org. That's what I know. Yeah. Uh, probably yes. It's going to be self-serving. If it's like anything else, Facebook related, it's about them first and everybody else, whenever I just really believe. And you know, if you look at the the pattern of historical actions they have taking, and just like I said, don't listen to what they tell you, watch what they actually do. If you watch what Facebook actually does, it's an incredibly self-serving company. If you watch what Google does, They actually seem to care about the entire ecosystem of all their stuff they're leading to, right? They want the internet to be good and awesome. So people go there and go there through Google, right? And the health of the web helps them as a company, right?
0: So from your interactions with developers, what is missing from the world of software engineering these days, either in terms of applications or community or emotions, any category of thing that could be injected into
1: the world of software engineering? Well, for me, it was Stack Overflow. That was what was missing. So I went up and built the thing that I thought we were missing. And it's been pretty popular, not to toot my horn or anything, but um, my goal was like, how do we get – improve the worst developers? How do you reach the developers that cause the most problems? And for me, it was about peer-to-peer education. Like, how do we get younger developers to learn from older developers or – you know, just more experienced developers or whatever. Everybody has different skill sets. It's not about age per se. It's just about relative differences in, in skill. And that's what Stack Overflow was, was was a way to say, look, let's raise the bar for anyone that's trying to be a programmer and not doing so well, a place they can go to get the answers that they need to become a better developer. Um, and these small bite-sized units of work, not like sit down and take this boring 15-minute webinar thing, but like just <laughs> to answer my question. <laughs> you know i i have a problem can you fix it for me and th- they go and they fix it and there's really three levels of using stack overflow there's the selfish one which is i just have a problem i need to solve that still benefits me because if you have a bad developer getting a good solution to a problem that's much better than that bad developer just coming up with their own solution <laughs> much much better um then level two is like i want to improve my skills the more the higher my skill level the more money i can make as a programmer right because i'm more talented i'm good you know i'm a senior programmer now right i i have this track record of being very very good so stack overflow can teach you that you can start helping other people the best way to learn something is to teach it to someone else this is universally true if you want to figure out if you really know your stuff try to teach it to somebody you'll find out very rapidly if you actually know your stuff or not (laughs) so that's how you get good and then level three which is the highest is like advancing the entire state of programming in other words programming is going to be here when we're dead All we're really doing is pushing this boulder along so that people can stand on our shoulders and build even better things, you know, for the future. So it's taking this long-term view of we're building this Creative Commons repository of information from which we're learning, and everybody is getting better as a result. And software engineering is getting better, which makes the world better. I mean, if you're like Andreessen Horowitz, you're like, oh, the software is eating the world. Well, Stack Overflow is where that stuff gets built to the extent that the world gets eaten whether that's a good thing or a bad thing <laughs> and it could be both right it could be good it could be bad is is going to be predicated on where was it built in in a reasonable way with skill you know like a building literally a building if you build a building that falls on people that's not a good building if you build a building that's a beautiful and also you know b works really well has its interiors are well designed it doesn't have stairways that go nowhere um it doesn't fall on people. There's there's higher level goals that you're getting to. It's like eventually you could build this massive cathedral, right, um, with everybody's help. So I, I think to me, it's that that was the one thing I thought we needed. Um, I I don't know. Like I said, I think diversity inclusion, sort of the next billion users, is sort of the next problem. And I think to me, that's a cultural problem more than a technical problem at this point. Mm. And I don't I don't have a perfect answer for that. <laughs> Other than I will observe that I do support a lot of the diversity initiatives around. It is true, more diverse perspectives result in a better product. I do oh, yeah. That. I mean, if everybody in your team knows every word of Lord of the Rings, it's not really <laughs> a diverse team. <laughs> you see what I'm
0: saying? Unless you're Palantir, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. That's, that's, a, that's a fantastic way to close off. Jeff, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I am a huge fan of your products. They have been extremely helpful to me. And I don't know if I would be as good of a developer today if not for Stack Overflow. So thank thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome.